You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves in the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Each week, Roger is joined by Joe and Vince. In 2008, there was a sense of wonder, of adventure right beyond the reach of every outpost. An explorer could travel for hours, witnessing something different in every zone. Creatures had not yet been screenshotted, documented, and catalogued on dozens of websites. There was the unknown. I clearly remember running a human rogue by the name of Bullslayer across zones and continents in order to quest in the starting Night Elf area that I may build up my reputation with their faction and eventually be the first human on that server to ride a feline mount. This had never been done. In fact, most players couldn't fathom how I even made the journey over as there were simply no paths that made it simple in those first few months. It had been an adventure of epic proportions, which had left me with a story to tell to anyone who whispered. And it was because of that journey that I befriended one such person who whispered me and wound up in their guild for years. World of Warcraft has been around for over 10 years now, its latest expansion, Warlords of Draenor, having recently released. And as someone who's been playing it on and off again during those many years, despite those new continents and time portals... I've never been able to recapture that sense of the unknown, which is exceptionally important. Tonight we're going to start off the show discussing just that. We'll get to Warlords of Draenor in a few moments to be followed by Dragon Age Inquisition and later Tales from the Borderlands. But I wanted to ask you both, and we'll start with you Vince, as I know that you're not currently playing, is part of what keeps you away from WoW that sense that despite new facelifts, the core of the game is still very much something that you've already experienced enough of? And is it possible for WoW to ever be fresh and exciting again? Well, I don't think that's the problem. It's For me, it's just more MMOs in general. And yeah, WoW specifically, just because I've tread that, tr- that path enough times. But it can have that element because when I, the last time I came back for Cataclysm, you know, I loved exploring all of the redone zones and But it was the same cool zone, stuff. though. It wasn't but that it was, you were doing something new or exciting. It was the same zone for the most part and as it was we still s- something different though and that's that's something i always like in games is something new something different because when I, I stopped once i got to level 60 and had to redo old stuff again so it it's not necessarily like it doesn't have to be brand new it just has to be different enough for me right joe what about you i still play um i still find things that i enjoy about the game whether it's finding hidden pop culture references uh, or if it's just spending time with friends. And the social aspect of the game is a big thing for me because I'm a, I'm a social gamer. I enjoy hanging out with people and doing things with a group of people. And I have not found anything as close to that as with WoW, uh, especially as of late where I'm rediscovering a world with friends who are also into that same style of gameplay. So whenever we find something cool, it's very nice to sit there and message back and forth or talk on Mumble and exclaim, hey, did you find this? Here are the coordinates, and everybody's going there. 
this is is that really happening that often for you right yes really because i've done all of warlords as well i'm quite certain not to the degree that you have but there was nothing in warlords that stopped me in my tracks thinking wow with that same level of excitement of the unknown that was prevalent in the first few years of the game and like nothing 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 to that degree at all see and for me it's stuff like going to high mall for the first time we've heard about this years ago when burning crusade first released there were talks about this ancient empire that the ogres had and Haimal was this mythical place that didn't exist all we had was Blades Edge Mountains which was a terrible zone and a terrible raid inside of a terrible zone with the terrible raid fights that were absolutely just I'm sorry they were just terrible is the best word I can really think of and now to see how all of that sort of started but done better especially with the Haimal the lore that's behind it, the idea that even now there's still this ancient established empire that predates every other race on Draenor uh, going into the raid and doing not only just that stuff, but all the quests around it and doing things for the archaeology societies that unlock more and more little tidbits about that particular empire. Things like that are incredibly interesting to me. And I do find a lot of joy in that. I find a lot of discovery in that because these are things that maybe were whispers or like a single quest years ago that have now turned into this full-fledged storyline. And that's amazing to me that they've actually sort of hit the reset button and kind of done much more than I thought they were going to do with a lot of different things. I don't know that reset actually works for me because again all it is is taking what's already there and either expanding or changing it a little bit so to me that's not really a a reset and i think again i think you're i think you're missing the 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 point that i was trying to to get to and and it's quite likely because i just didn't explain it well enough but again when i'm looking at it and talking about that sense of of wonder and excitement of something new, what you're describing is more about getting more information about something that you already know. You know what I mean? More detail, more lore. It's immersing yourself more fully in a story that you are already a part of. It's not something fresh and new. Like, that was supposed to be what we got some of with Pandaria, with entirely new zone and different stuff there. But of course, there was also a lot of ties to Azeroth proper and, and whatnot. And then with Draenor, it's that trip in the way back machine messing around with that continuity as well kind of thing. But it's nothing that is that fresh, exciting, new feeling of not knowing what's around every corner because despite the fact that the these zones are, are revamped and whatnot personally myself you still know what to expect and i don't mean just in terms of the lore 
the characters and whatnot, but right down to the actual game design as well. Mm -hmm. So little has changed in terms of you know there's going to be a group of three there that you have to take on. There's going to be a little mini boss there with another group of three or four. And the, the placement of everything, like right down to the design, that core mentality, that the schematic that they use when designing new zones or whatever is still so very much the same that while there are a few encounters that shift from that and that are different, the overall experience is still one that is so... For lack of a better term, and without trying to sound too negative, it's it's boring because we've been experiencing that for 10 years now. I can definitely see that, Raj, because I, I think back to when all three of us were playing Wildstar when it first came out. And that first month or two meant everything was amazing because it was we had no idea what to expect yeah. from that game, from that setting, from any of it. And it's just a, I think it's just something that comes with being around for so long. No matter how much you try to innovate, you're always going to be innovating upon the same core principles. So you're just by attrition going to lose a lot of that magic that made it so special at the beginning. Yeah, And I think that's just, and Vince is right at hitting the nail on the head there, that's just a problem of the MMO space in general. Really, at this point, nobody has really pushed the boundaries so far to create something so brand new that it's completely blown me away the same way that Vanilla Wow did. And like you said, captured that that sense of awe and discovery and not knowing. I can still get my sense of discovery in other capacities, but not nearly the same. You're right, and I, I will grant you that. And it's it's not that I'm bashing it too much. Hell, I'm still playing. I'm still playing sure. pretty much every day. And there are aspects that I I do like. There are a lot more aspects that I'm not a fan of with Janor, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I, I still am playing. There still are aspects that I like. It's just one of those things that, you know, it's, I wonder, is it possible for them to achieve this kind of thing? I'd like to think that it is. It's just that it would take such a shift in mentality for not just the designers, but upper-up management to be able to let their people go with their imaginations and create things that are fundamentally different than what we're experiencing now. And it's a cho- it's a chance. It might fail on them, but at, at this point, you know, going on over 10 years now, I think that it's a chance that they have to take just so that they, they can do something different, something fresh and new with it instead of it constantly being the same kind of thing. So let's actually talk about Draenor now. Now, Joe, I'm going to let you take this for a little bit. And for those of you who aren't playing right now or who just want a recap of what the overarching stories are in Draenor, go ahead and let us know what it's all about. When I say that this is a reset, I do mean that in a more general term. We're going back to the world of Draenor before the orcs drank blood. Uh, of the demons before the forces of Sargeras pushed them into such a frenzy that they've completely destroyed and ransacked the entire countryside and world, and before they opened up portals to Azeroth to invade. This is coming to a point of before even, essentially, the initial aspect of WoW started. And that's kind of an an integral point of everything that's going on here. While it was a vehicle set forth by 
the escaping of one Garrosh Hellscream with the aid of the infinite flight to go not only through time and space, but alternate dimensions, essentially, uh, to sort of stop the orcs from drinking that blood, but then turn them into the Iron Horde that you see now. If I can stop you just for one moment before you can keep going, I think this is the perfect point to actually point out how brilliant Christy Golden's novel for this, if you have played through before the expansion and then read the novel, what was the name of the novel again? Um, War Crimes. War Crimes, yeah. Um, How brilliant a transition that was reading that novel and then working your way into the expansion. Absolutely phenomenal. So when players first get into or through the portal after everything has changed, we've we've seen the portal change colors. There are new horde uh, aspects starting to invade the rest of Azeroth. We fight that tide back, go through the portal, and we're immediately put not into the blasted lands. We're pushed into the Tanan jungle, this lush green place, this this vibrant life filled area that surrounds the dark portal on the other side. And this is a very uh, interesting transition sort of from where it was because that particular area was supposed to be completely barren, just like on our side. Um, it was something that just completely drained out. And that's where we see, you know, the, the crater surrounding it. Um, but what's interesting here is the transition with the NPCs that you see. The first thing that you are, are getting into here is classic NPCs that you see like Chogal or Terran Gore and Gul'dan, uh, which you release out into the wild, essentially the same as you did before, but in a different capacity. And then you're forced through the world with Kagdar starting to go forth, and you start to find out how far the Iron Horde has actually spread. Not only that, but now you start to find out how far Garrosh has actually manipulated things without outright saying who he is or, or anything along those lines. And I thought that was kind of an interesting move for them, especially considering that we dealt with Garrosh for so long. Garrosh had this amazing uh, sort of flight from his persecution uh, in war crimes, and then straight into this, where he's already tearing through this world that was otherwise untouched. Now, have you, I'm guessing you've already gone through all the Tanan Jungle stuff, correct? I've finished everything, but that being said, I finished it on Alliance this time. I'd previously been playing mainly Horde for a few years, actually, and I decided this time around that I would try the ally side, especially because so much of the slant is Horde side with this expansion that I wanted to see how it would be handled on the Alliance side. I will go to the Horde side later because I've got a crap load of characters on a phenomenal server and a great guild, but for now... I'm, I'm ally side. The uh, the only thing I've done has been just a few of the starter areas for on the Horde side. That said, though, a lot of it is actually very, very similar at the start, at least. And I would tend to agree, uh, at, at least as far as the setup of the initial quests go. You're still battling against the Tide. In this case, it's the Iron Horde instead of Demons. Uh, you're still trying to find your foothold, whether it's... Uh, I cannot remember the name of the keep, and I apologize. Uh, but the Alliance keep or the battlefront that the Horde had set up, instead it's you go to a different area where your Alliance are going to wind up in Shadow Moon Valley or the Horde is setting up in Frostfire Ridge, which 
was actually a pretty gorgeous zone. And I hadn't spent too much time in Shadowmoon Valley, and I have not spent any time leveling a lion side, so I don't know much of what happens in there. But I know that when you transition into Frostfire Ridge, the Horde side, and you're right, it is very Horde-centric, you start to learn more about all the machinations as far as the betrayals uh, that happened just among the war chiefs themselves, uh, the different sort of... I don't want to say old stories retold, but for lack of a better term, old stories retold. Uh, but from different aspects, you start to see, uh, I think the most interesting thing is you spend a lot of time with Thrall's father and his mother. Um, Thrall's kind of there. Originally, I think he was supposed to have a larger role. He's just kind of got a, like a backseat, which I thought was rather interesting and a, probably a smart choice on their part. So you do a lot more with, you know, Draka and Drekthar and basically the Frostwolf clan doing all the invading, but you start realizing how much they've been betrayed, right? Not just this assassins came to kill them in the night. We're talking about people that they considered brothers and sisters, uh, starting to turn on them, turning their back on them, denying them aid. And it's sort of this kind of powerful draw you in, if you are a Horde member, uh, storyline that was missing from Burning Crusade. Like you were just kind of there. The Shadowmoon Valley actually questing is among the best alliance side. There's a few quests in a few other places, especially the, the Spires of Iraq. But uh, Shadowmoon Valley stuff ally side is really quite good because you're doing a lot of questing with Velen and with Urel. And so you're getting to see when she gets touched by Velen that thing on her forehead thing whatever <laughs> and so you're getting um you're getting to see her story and when she loses her i think it's her sister she she loses early on i, I believe is what it is you you work with her quite a bit and i like that because it was funny be- beforehand it was again it was everybody was complaining rightfully so about Janor being this just massive sausage fest and to the point of people dropping their subscription saying i've had it enough is enough especially because we'd just gotten those stupid comments that have been made too about blizzard being a boys club essentially and them not wanting to change that so then when you're playing through ally side and you're getting urel as such a powerful figure that you're working with i loved it and she's a great character as well and then of course the stuff with velen there's a few points where velen is just epic to work with but Early on as well, and this happens throughout, I found, but especially early on, Blizzard failed to understand, and this is something that has happened in the past as well, and I hate it every single time it happens, failed to understand that if they want to create epic moments where the player feels like they are overcoming challenges that a normal person could not. It's just this epic moment. They have to stop making it so that when the boss that you're fighting, even if it's a mini boss or whatever, is at their last 5% life, instead of you delivering that killing blow, that uh, whether it's Velen or Kagar or whatever comes by and just does it for you and then boom, you're gone. To me, that is like, the example I use is, it's like you're fighting the schoolyard bully who's way tougher than you, and you're actually beating him, and you're about to give the last shot that's going to knock him off, and your mom shows up, grabs him by the ear, and pulls him off to the principal's office. 
that's not epic. And that's what it feels like. And it happens all too often. You're talking about the first questing and it happens with, with, uh, Kagar. When you go through into that little arena where what's yeah. his name? Blade fist is there and you're fighting Target. and you're fighting yeah. and you're fighting. And it's supposed to be, you know, in, in so much as it can be this epic moment where you're, you're taking on a lot of guys and all that. And then at the last moment he goes, whoosh, everybody's frozen. Okay, let's go. And I'm like, what the hell? Why didn't you do that right away? Like, you could have saved us a lot of trouble if you would have just walked in the room and gone, swoosh, everybody's gone, and then you just walk on through. And that happens See, all too often. You make an interesting point because that is something that, they, that you're right. It happens way too often, not just in WoW, but almost any game, really. Um, and it, it, I think they paid attention to that particular complaint because that was a complaint players had not just in the beta uh, but when it went live as well, uh, and during the beta, there was such a ruckus that they actually changed one of the raid fights and how it ended. So originally, and this is going to be slight spoilers there, so you've been warned if you haven't done this already. But if you haven't, well, it's been how many weeks now, months? When you go into the first part of High Mall, you go into the arena that Cargath Bladefist uh, was forced to fight in, essentially at the whims of the ogres. And there's this moment where you're fighting him and you kill you basically you're delivering that final blow. Originally it was scripted that he escaped the arena and you were supposed to kill him later on, which was absolutely horrible, ungratifying, everybody hated it. They did actually change it so that the players do finally get the killing blow on him. That happens in a whole bunch of other, at least ally side, whether it's Nerzul or what's oh, yeah. Score. What's this? I, he's a low level pawn, but still he's kind of like a mini boss that changes kind of thing. But there's a bunch of them where right towards the end, they just up and disappear. And it's like, God damn it. This it's you're just I know you're trying to drag shit out, but it's not it doesn't feel epic. It doesn't make me feel like I'm the hero of this story working through. It's a it's a cheat and I hate that. It but it's worse still, like I said, when the NPC's the one that comes and saves the day at the last moment instead of allowing you to have that killing blow. That is oh, God, it frustrates me and to no end. And that is a huge complaint of mine that it's perpetuated through every single zone at least a handful of times, if not more. And that is a major complaint of mine as far as this expansion goes. While there is a ton of better storytelling and there's a ton of better just questing and fleshing out of storylines and there's a lot of history being conveyed like when you're in the spires of Iraq and you get to actually play as a bird god, which is kind of interesting and I thought was really well done. Even then, you're still not the hero. You're just replaying events. And there's a lot of that going on. And at this point in the game world, right, and this is something I I talked about a long time ago, we went from a group of heroes that needed 40 players to go take on uh, basically what was a raid boss, but this huge global threat. That number then reduced as we got more powerful. And then it kept being reduced as we got more powerful and more powerful and more powerful. And how many times have we saved how many worlds at this point? And you can't let us get those goddamn last final blows. You can't let us out of that gratification. You still have to prop your, your NPCs up. It feels to me, and I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but when I was a kid, we used to play a lot of D&D. And the DMs that we had at the time were these 
former basement nerds that would sort of write these epic storylines like they were trying to pretend to be Tolkien. And every single time they would have like this super NPC that they would insert in and it would always steal the party's glory. And I hate that. And I hate that here. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Spires of Iraq, if you have not um, done it, Ally Side has among the best quests for to, to eventually get the Admiral Taylor follower for oh, your garrison. Oh, that is so rough. Did you, oh, well, hold on. You don't get that on the Horde side though, do you as well? That no, you get the same story, but you don't get him as a follower. You oh, get, okay. See, that's so the it, other thing I don't like with this is that so much of the experience is the same, whether you're Horde or Alliance. And I know their rationale being that, well, you're all up against the orcs. So, of course, there's going to be some similarities. But no, not to this degree, I find. Going back to that quest, that was, for me, when I look at, again, good questing throughout the entirety of the uh, the expansion, that Admiral Taylor stuff, and then eventually having him walking around in ghost form in your garrison. Wow, that's... That's spectacular. That's the reason why you need to quest Inspires of Rack, if nothing else. I would absolutely agree. Even from a horrid side, even though you don't get him as a follower, you do get a, a nice little undead death knight that you wake up from being burned alive. Uh, it's really, really nice as far as that goes, but you get the same level of story and it kicks you right in the yeah. teeth. Yeah. Especially if you do the little extra. Like, I will, uh, this is the other thing I will say is there's a, a hidden treasure inside of the garrison the the little garrison area where you get admiral taylor uh and it's his personal belongings his personal effect his journal you need to go and find that key and get that journal and read the journal especially if you care about story it is a wonderful wonderful addition to the quest line (laughs) some of it is funnier than hell yes it is (laughs) yeah aspires of iraq has got a lot of good stuff too where you're you're like questing with the raven lord stuff and, and things like that that is really spectacular. Okay, was there more lore-related things you wanted to talk about before we actually talk about some of the game stuff as well? Absolutely. There's a lot of little tiny stories that sort of uh, pick up where, again, where Burning Crusade sort of left off, like the Throne of the Elements when we're talking about uh, Nagrand. And we talk, we hear in Burning Crusade there was the death of the custodian, essentially, that was never replaced. We actually get to not only witness that, but aid in the passing of that that NPC, which is actually a very powerful moment for anybody who's ever did that original quest line. There's all sorts of little, I, I want to say throwbacks, which make that really, really solid. And the Grand is probably the other area where if you're going to quest with any length of time, even after you get to maximum level, I would highly recommend because there are so many different influences there besides the, the Mogar Raiders, uh, the High Mall uh, faction is there. The different archaeology factions are there, and every single piece of that zone tells a little bit of the different story for every uh, faction, for every race. There's something for everybody there, and the climactic moment is that is an epic showdown between Thrall and Garrosh. And while I'm again normally would like to be the hero, it was a little bit satisfying to see that sort of 
showdown happen and how it happened and how you made it happen because you're the one that set that up. That one I will get that I will grant them was well worth the time and effort. So I would highly recommend doing that because it advances not just the story of that zone, but propels everything else forward for the rest of the expansion. Like that is the point that pushes everything else forward. Okay. Let's talk about one of the biggest things that they talked about beforehand i had a huge problem with it before when it first came out i enjoyed it a little just because of the novelty and now it is one of the biggest chores and the worst things that i have ever experienced in this game and that's garrisons i i hate them garrisons are worse than the pen farm i've been talking to guild members as well we've been ranting and raving about this it's just again the initial fun quirk of it and messing around despite the fact that i had no use for it when they were talking about it before the game came out while it was still in beta but i thought well i'll give it a shot and then you're messing around with the followers and trying to get as many as you can and different ones and all that and it does not take long before you see garrisons is a triumphant failure and not just a waste of time, a colossal waste of time, insular time where you are not interacting with anybody else, but also resources. I'm spending tens of thousands on them across multiple level 100s now that is going to be absolutely useless come the next expansion because they've said garrisons are a warlord's product that you're not going to see in future expansions. So we're quite literally spending tens of thousands on something that is going to be useless later on. So my biggest, my two biggest complaints with this is the original concept for it is not what we were delivered. And the original concept was something that I was very excited for because it was supposed to be essentially a player housing or guild housing uh, that you chose what zone it was in. You got to pick a plot somewhere. And we can see little pieces of that as you're questing where you get to, here's a pre-designated plot in this zone that you get to pick an upgrade for, but it's not quite the same. That's my initial gripe with them. My second gripe is it actually takes you out of the goddamn game world because there is no incentive for you to really go out and explore once you have all the treasures. There's really no incentive to go to the main city because you can build an auction house in your own base. You can build a bank in your base. You can build transmog in your base. Uh, You can build guild bank access in your base. You can build any other secondary professions you want in your base. There is no incentive whatsoever to really go out into the world. And some people will argue that, yes, some of the, the buildings require you to go out and gather resources. But what does it really do? It sends you to a single zone where you repeat the same action of farming just like you used to do way back when. And that's not fun. It doesn't force players to interact. It doesn't force players to go discover things. It doesn't. It completely shattered inter-character reliance. So you don't have to go, you know, talk and strike up a deal to get any sort of raw resources because you can produce them all yourself. You can craft most things by yourself. Uh, yes, finding somebody who actually has the skill is quicker, but you don't have to. It encourages antisocial behavior in a multi-massive online role-playing game. I, I hate that. I do too. It's what I've said over and over again. And it, what's funny is that 
I am one of those because I don't suffer fools well, and I'm an old man in his 40s, that I don't listen to, I keep the trade chat off and general chat off because it's, oh my God, it's it's worse than freaking Baron's chat used to be back in the day. It's absolute stupidity. So it's quite literally, I chat with guild members or other friends who are online. It's, it's such an insular experience. It's unbelievable. And you can do everything there. And, and it's become a chore. You don't need to go and mine every day. But you will, because you're going to use those to trade for garrison resources at your trading post so that you could send your guys off on more missions or or whatever it is. And it's just this wicked device that they created to make you feel like you have to go in, but not to do anything that's fun, not to do anything wherein you're exploring and interacting with people or you happen upon a rare while you're out doing something or for people who are in PVP realms, go in PVP because you're out mining or doing your herbalism, things like that. No, you're stuck in your own little cocoon and it simply is not fun. Same thing with the followers that here was something that it was going to have maybe an RTS feel to it. It doesn't. No, people get so fed up of it that you install two mods. I've got two mods. Some people may have more than two, but I've got two that tells you exactly who to send, what the percentage is of their success, and boom, you just click the button, it puts them all in, you click send, and that's it. And you just follow through with everyone until they're all gone, and that's it. It simply is not fun. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources, an insane waste of resources, because everything everything is so bloody expensive to these these upgrades and again it's a wasted time because come the next expansion all for naught think of how much you invested in your panda farm when's the last time you've been there not since warlords came out i think the the most painful part of it is it's a waste of potential it could have been so much better than it actually is no without a doubt look at the devs they've got These people do know what they're doing. They could have created something. Now, here is where people are going to either agree or if they're anti-any other games, will rant and bitch. But for everything that people will complain about Wildstar, Wildstar's housing is the best housing that has ever existed in any game. Wildstar's housing allows you to create anything anything you want to create the limitation is your imagination and that's it can you imagine world of warcraft where you are given the same tools that you can create whatever you want on your plot and then the beauty of wildstar's housing as well is that it allows people to come to your lot your plot and take part in it as well. And not only does it allow, it encourages it. Not only does it encourage it, people just plain want even, to. There's, even when those people aren't online. Yeah, there's no reason to go to anybody else's garrisons. I mean, there's the little invasions, but honestly, I, I just hate doing those now because it's, a, again, a waste of time and utter stupidity. But you look at Wildstar stuff, like, I mean, people are making 
racetracks and holding their own competitions on them. I built a library on one of my alts and we have monthly book club meetings there. Think of that. A game has allowed us, our guild, to create something we're in. We read books in real life, out of game, and then meet in an area in game to discuss them. People have created all manner of things. And then there's on top of that, there's the plugs in Wildstar that put a variety of different little instances, games, challenges, all kinds of stuff. And that's it. I mean, but at the same point, it also doesn't take you out of the game world because it doesn't offer you, you know, the same thing. Yes, you can get some resources from your housing. Uh, yes, you can get some cosmetic things, but you still need to go out in the world to get the vast majority of it. It still forces you back into the world that they created. You can be there for social stuff and for personal stuff, but I think that's the key right there. That's that's what sets it above more than anything else. Is it still forces you to have to, to at its most base level go into the world that they've created for you to go exploring well, for things. It encourages it so that you can go and finish this instance in order to get a chance at this dec- decorative item that you can put in your lot, in your housing, or to get whatever, or to craft different things that you could put in your housing. All kinds of stuff like that. More interaction with your guild because somebody's an architect and can make you all kinds of stuff that you can use. Like, Wildstar did housing so amazingly, and I keep thinking, can you imagine that in World of Warcraft? Having access to those assets to create your own castles, your own whatever freaking gnomish airstrips, you name it, create something that's fun. That then you talk about in general chat and say, hey, come check out this, you know, goblin racetrack that i built and here are the the prizes i'm going to put up for whoever comes and and wins it forces that sense of community and garrisons doesn't do that and it they blew it they had such a a, an opportunity that they could have ran with and, and they blew it um what else did we get the other big thing that they were making a huge deal about was the new the uh, were the new character models which in a lot of cases, I actually find worse than the old ones. I don't know about you. I hate the new Tauren. Yeah, I think they they look far too human. I think they humanized a lot of the races far too much. There's what I find is that with a lot of them, especially the gnomes, especially the Drenais, especially the female Drenais, they all look almost identical. They the the there's very few differences in the actual faces for them all, which is so disappointing. So and that's about it, I guess. Unless there's something else you can think of. No, I mean that's pretty much it. Like they're they're definitely they've come a long way from what they were. Some of them, I will say, do look better. Like I do like the new gnomes quite a bit. Um, I just I don't like that they took a lot of the monstrous races and made them not as monstrous as they used to be. And that was part of the fun for me. Like, I used to love the fact of being a giant stomping, grass-eating cow shaman that could go through and just looked mean as hell when he wanted to. Now, not so much. Yeah. I think I think they missed the ball on some of them. Some of them came out great. Others, not so much. Okay. All right. That's going to do it for World of Warcraft. We're going to move on to what was voted by a great many places the game of the year last year and that's dragon age inquisition now we played 
the hell out of the first two Dragon Age games. Loved them. Had some critical things to say about both of them, especially two. And (laughs) it was funny because a few weeks back, the guy who does the voice for the extra credits was tweeting about Dragon Age and saying how impressed he was with the scope of it. Just how many different areas you can go to. And he was joking, saying he pictures there's a designer somewhere that has all over their walls, all of the comments that people made about Dragon Age 2 having all the same assets and locations and hasn't left that office since then. And has just been cranking out all of these different areas. Now, I've been playing on the PS4. Vince, I know you're on the PS4. Vince, or Joe, you've been somewhat sporadically on the PC. I'm just going to come out and say it right away. I've barely played it. I've had it. I pre-ordered it. I've had it. I played it for a while. I made the mistake of choosing a sword and board Kunari. I love the design. I don't like that his beard hovers over his face because of stupid (laughs) graphical issues, but I like the character. Unfortunately, Dragon Age, and I'd forgotten this. Well, not really forgotten. It's it. Your class makes a huge difference, or rather your enjoyment of said class. And I'd found that I'd had to play around with which classes to play for both of the first two Dragon Age, and apparently I had to do it for this one as well. And for me, Dragon Age is very much about playing a mage. I came to realize again, I played a mage in both the first ones. I didn't main as a mage for both necessarily. I played several other classes, but I did really enjoy playing a mage, especially in the first one. I recreated a new um, a female canary this time around and made her a mage and immediately was enjoying it a lot more. But because I haven't gotten too far in, I'm not going to have too much to say except for a few of the quirks that I'm not crazy about. But Vince, you have put in how many hours on this so far, do you figure? I just wrapped up my first playthrough the other day. Oh, and really? that's just the story. Like there's some stuff I want to go back and do just for like, you know, trophy purposes and whatnot. Right. Um, at a hair under 90 hours. Jesus Christ. Now I will say that I probably put a little too much time into it because yes, there's these huge, amazing zones, very wide range of environments. You know, you have lush forests, you know, parched deserts, you know, snowy mountains, like each zone feels unique. And, one thing I do like is that each zone also has its own purpose in the story. Like, it's not just, okay, here's another place to go do a bunch of side quests. It's, okay, here's another place to go do a bunch of side quests, but at least the main side quest in each zone is actually important to the story. It expands upon the lore of the world. So that's why I, when I told you, uh, my suggestion is to focus on, obviously, do all your companion quests and do the main story quest in each zone. But don't try too hard for a lot of the uh, secondary objectives. Like, I do anything that's in my path, anything I come across, absolutely. But for me, uh, approximately halfway through the game, I had done so much stuff that I was so overleveled, the entire game was trivial to me. Like, I was a good five to ten levels above everything I was doing, and it really sucked a lot of the fun factor out. Because the game scales with you, but only to a point. Each quest in each zone has a maximum level to it so you can if you spend too much time doing a lot of those side objectives you can very easily out level the game which you do that you know, because you, there's a couple of bears to, kicking my go ass for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I was saying for me, it really sucked a lot of the enjoyment out of the last half of the game because I was just, I was holding down the X button and winning every fight. Right. Now, some of that had to do with the fact that I was a knight enchanter and knight enchanters are OP as shit. But it also had to do with the fact that I was functionally immortal for my entire party. Okay, how are you, how are you making a knight enchanter? Does that come up later? Because that's not a, a class you can start with. That is one of the mage specializations. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, yeah. And uh, the other one being Rift Mage and uh, God, Necromancer. Basically, e- any of your party members has a specialization, and then you as the Inquisitor can choose one of them uh, once you reach Skyhold and get to level 10, I think. Right. Like I said, I and haven't played that, that was like one of my biggest gripes with the game is... Uh, you know, like you get to the war table and they're like, okay, you know, we can invite these people to uh, train the Inquisition better. And you go talk to them. And I like, guess cool. Like they really explain to you the lore behind your specializations. I really enjoyed a lot of that. And then they give you a quest with no explanation whatsoever how to complete it. It's just like, yeah, go gather a bunch of these. Cool. Where do they come from? You know, stuff. <laughs> I, it's, it's the so only specific. It's the only part of the game that I was pretty much required to look up online. Uh, and I, I know there are people who got to like level 20 and still hadn't unlocked their specialization because they just couldn't figure out where to get the items for it. Alrighty then. But I, I will uh, definitely agree with your point that I'd say in this game, more than any other playing a mage is important. Because in the first two games, the roles of mages in society are pretty much set. Uh, you know, with the the circles, and then even though by the end of Dragon Age two, the the system had been thrown on its ear, you're still very much working within a preset amount of parameters. But once you get to Inquisition, you know you're in the middle of the Mage Rebellion. You have the huge war going on. Mages are fighting for freedom. Some mages are fighting uh, to bring things back to the old way. So role playing as a mage in Inquisition, I found very rewarding because you really felt like you had a direction, like an actual hand in shaping the role of the mages in that society. Like no matter how inclusive you were to the mages in the earlier games, nothing was going to change. But in Dragon Age Inquisition, you can actually make choices to either give the mages full freedom or resubjugate them or even going into some darker places with what you could do with the mages. So yeah, definitely, you're right, Bioware has always favored mages from a storytelling standpoint, but in Inquisition, they take it so much farther, and it was actually a real joy to play through as a mage in this one. Because honestly, none of my primary characters in the first two Dragon Ages were mages. Hmm. This, was, this was the first full playthrough I did with a mage character because I saw, first of all, how cool the Night Enchanter was, but secondly, how important they were going to be to this story Plus the fact that they finally enabled you to play as a Canari. So I just kind of cobbled together that role-playing character in my head of, you know, the Canari uh, player character is a Vashoth. You know, they were born outside the Kuhn. And, you know, knowing how the Kuhn treats mages, uh, you know, ripping out their tongues. <laughs> and, and that's the uh, easy part of it. You know, I really see that, okay, I play a Canari mage really driving for the Ferelden and Orlesian mages to have freedom that the Kunari mages aren't uh, presented with. Like That gave me a really interesting role-playing hook behind the character. See, I played a mage in both the other two, and especially going down the blood mage path was so much fun. 
because not only was the gameplay a ton of fun, but then the interactions from that point on were phenomenal. So yeah, See, I my, had forgotten my that. First, when I this. My first Origins character was a mage, and I just screwed that character up so bad from like skill selections and I like that I actually had to restart the game. It was so bloody terrible. So like from there I was like, okay, let me try out the rogue, let me try out the warrior. And I enjoyed those two so much I just kind of carried those two into Dragon Age too. Okay. Yeah. The only thing that I'm I'm seeing so far is that the um the healing is way different with Inquisition than it was with the other ones. <laughs> exactly. Whereas the other one you could just keep healing your party. This one you can't and I hate that. I hate that so much. Yeah, they were really trying to drive the tactical gameplay aspect. And if you had seen any of their pre-release marketing, they were really driving oh, tactical gameplay. You know, you do really important to position your characters just right. Not really. Honestly, like very, very rarely did I even go into the tactics menu. Now, if you're playing on a higher difficulty, it's probably a little more important. But... I found it largely unnecessary and couldn't get my characters to obey my commands half the time anyway. So, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. So not having that full tactical control like we were expecting really does affect you know, your, your healing ability, which is why I didn't mind being overleveled to an extent. But like I said, I, I would had taken it so far. It, so it really comes down to a lot of you know making sure your characters are built properly. That it kind of takes a lot of the fun out of it because you always need a fully specced spirit mage in your party, like without a doubt. The only acceptable tanks are Cassandra and Blackwall, unless you want to completely respec Iron Bull. Because in uh, Dragon Age Origins, Dragon Age Two, you could very easily tank with a two-handed warrior. No, Bull just does not have the. Uh, guard generation needed to be an effective tank. So it, it really hampers a lot of your party dynamics, which is really the most fun part of the Dragon Age franchise is throwing the most interesting characters together and just seeing what happens with them. Well, being able to go out and quest with a golem, <laughs> you know, just because you want to have fun and hear the conversations that they're going to have with other party members. So it's important to that each of the party members can bring something to the table that is, um, that's a lot of fun and yet still useful feeling like you have to choose a specific party member ruins mm -hmm. a whole, a whole bunch of the, the game because so much of that game is the interactions you have with your companions. That's what dragon age is all about. See, like Hoog says in the chat, iron bull sucks because iron bull is an absolute hindrance to your party anytime he's in it at the same time iron bull is actually probably the best character in the entire game so it's it, it's really frustrating in that regard and as you're talking about the tactics too one of the things that i don't like is how limiting the tactics are in terms of the behavioral tactics that you can set for your party oh, goodness like, whereas with yeah. origins it was like when you know when this party member when party members are below 25 percent, make sure to cast heal for this unless your man is at this and you could micromanage them so that you could then play without having to worry about it. This, I mean, you put a check mark beside which spells you want them to cast and the priority and that's, that's about it. Yeah. See, there's a lot of systems in the game that just didn't quite come through the way they intended the tactics, like the crafting, they made such a huge deal out of the crafting and it's an immensely deep system. It's really cool that they give you all these options that are 
ultimately useless because I was getting drops that were just as good as, if not better than the best crafted items I could make. So they, there's a lot of systems that they put in. I, I think they reached a little too far with some of the stuff they were trying to do here. And they said some of the systems just don't quite gel together and they feel almost tacked on or unfinished as a result of that. Right. Okay. Anything else? Um, well, I was going to have a feature this week before my body decided to rebel against me. But uh, just kind of touching on some of the story bits, I don't want to ruin anything. The overall like sweeping story of the game is typical bioware fare of okay you know here's a big threat and it merely serves as a backdrop for a lot of the character interactions and like that's kind of been a bit of a weakness like outside of maybe mass effect 2 the larger story hasn't been all that interesting in any bioware game it's really been about the characters and that's great because they do a fantastic job with the characters but there are some points in the actual overarching story that are cool as shit. Like it, it, when it works and when it's being paced out well and you're not spending 50 hours in between doing side quests, <laughs> that it's there. And, but I am just so amazed with the amount of depth in the individual characters. Like, uh, for next week's episode, I'm going to have a full feature recorded really exploring just how human so many of the characters are because it's funny like now that I've finished the game and I'm going back and I'm reading a lot more of people's impressions and it's almost like they played a different game than I did because of the way they interacted with the characters and it's a lot like in real life how how you interact with someone will definitely affect you know how they interact with you and the type of person they're portrayed as like some of the characters like Vivienne and Solace that just by the way my character interacted with them, they were very one-dimensional, very uninteresting. But for people that interacted with them in a different way, there was so much more depth to them. And I just thought that was fantastic how they were able to write these characters so multifaceted and, like I said, very human. It's just I'm really awed with the amount of character work that went into this game. Yeah. I think that's really cool to the note just because that was one of the things that even years ago when they were starting to talk about doing the third Dragon Age game, that was their goal because that was one of the largest complaints that they really had about, well, second game. Everything seemed kind of linear for a lot of the characters and people really complained about it. And this one, it's like, like, like you said, it seems everybody's got a different experience and that's really, really cool. Like even Origins or for the most part, Mass Effect, Old Republic, all that stuff, the characters were the same character regardless of if you were, you know, quote, good or quote, bad. And, you know, maybe they would talk to you a little differently, but, like, actual, like, completely different emotions. And, like, Vivienne, I think I love about Vivienne, she's, uh, in the game, she's very staunchly opposed to the Mage Rebellion. She wants things to go back to the way it was. So we butted heads from the very beginning, and I never got along with Vivienne. But the thing I loved is she was never cold to me, she was never mean. She was just incredibly snarky, and (laughs) basically Vivienne becomes the way most player characters treat NPCs. That's how (laughs) Vivienne treats you. And I just found that so hilarious and amazing and really motivating me to do a second playthrough so I can see the other sides to a lot of these characters. Because like you'll see 
arguments of like, oh, this character was stupid and pointless, followed by you know hundreds of posts. And it was like, what are you talking about? Their story was amazing. You did this and this and that. And I'm like, I didn't play the same game you did. That's so one of the reasons why I don't the, mind talking the about the overall people. story is, like I said, very linear and you don't really have a whole lot of agency in it because at the end of the day, you still have to save the world. The, what they did with the smaller stories really was effective. Okay. Okay. Any other pardon thoughts on it before we move on? Um, not off the top of my head. Okay, good. Well, we'll hear more about it when you do the feature anyways. Yes. So, and I, I, again, I'm looking forward to playing it more now that I found the class that I enjoy. Because actually playing as the mage too, just staying at the back while everybody just runs in. And if they die, you just run away. <laughs> <laughs> they catch up eventually. It's not a big deal. <laughs> okay, let's the move theater. on to Tales from the Borderlands. This is a Telltale game, and this was announced a while back, and a lot of people were wondering how well this would go through because you're looking at a completely different IP with Borderlands than what you'd expect from a Telltale game. And as has been the case with every game that they've put out so far, they don't disappoint. So episode one was Zero Sum, and that came out a while back. I played it on PS4. Vince, you played it as well, right? Yes, uh, also on PS4. Okay. Joe, have you played it? Sadly, not yet. Okay. It's on my list of things to play, but no. Okay, not a problem. As is the case with all Telltale games for me, I prefer playing them actually on a console, or if I'm playing it on PC, make sure to do it with a, uh, a controller because it makes a huge difference in how much enjoyment there is with it. That said, however, with this title... There was so little gameplay of moving around that it wouldn't make any difference what you play it on, actually. And that's one of the biggest concerns that I have with it is that it was all about the, the, the story-driven moments, which is fine, the narrative. And you did get to make some choices, although there really wasn't nearly enough choices nor choices that had any consequences that really mattered and then there were very few quote-unquote kind of puzzle elements that are prevalent in a lot of other telltale games and then like i said the gameplay there are so few moments where you actually pick up the controller and do something most of the time the controller was on my lap and i was watching and pressing a button to select what they would say so i don't know if you agree with that vince or if you uh, if you found it was fine, I'll definitely agree. But uh, I'll also counter with I also didn't care. I yeah. was just so sucked into it. I was more than happy just to you know make those dialogue choices and see what happened. It was a different experience than other Telltale games and other which Telltale is important games. since we're getting so many of them now. Yeah. And Telltale games are different than other games, and because they are so much about taking part in a story and it's more at times even like a visual novel than it is a game. It's just that this one I found took it way too far in that direction. And especially because it's from an IP that's a first person shooter. That's all about the first person action that this, I found that there just wasn't enough that said when there are elements that you take part in at points, they're freaking brilliant. So the story starts I, I off, really wanted to have control over that race. Yes. Yes, I it, agree. Not, not necessarily racing around, but at least giving me the option dodge left, dodge Doing right, something things. like that. I agree. I agree. The story starts off with the character of Reese. Now, this is a game which they had advertised there are 
two sides of every story and you are going to play as both Reese and Fiona, the character that you see later on. So you start as Reese, who is a, for lack of a better term, corporate stooge with Hyperion. And he works on the moon base for Hyperion and he believes he's going to get his a promotion to management or whatever and goes in to speak with the new person running uh that's uh vasquez voiced by patrick warburton now (laughs) this is the other thing with these games is that voice acting is always so important to these games and the voice acting here i mean we've got troy baker laura bailey we've got chris Troy baker no way yeah troy baker is reese I know. Okay, I didn't think you knew that. Okay, fine. That Nolan was, that North. Was yeah, Nolan North is in it as well. Like the voice. Nolan North. Is, no way. Shut up. Spectacular. <laughs> it's just Patrick Warburton is Patrick Warburton, and so no Patrick Warburton is Brock Samson. Well, I mean, you and just I'm perfectly okay with Brock Samson being a character see, and in he's any not, video he's, game. To me, he's Kronk. <laughs> so that's that's what I hear whenever I hear his voice. You get over it fairly fast, but it's funny because I actually was talking to somebody else and they were saying, yeah, they, they just couldn't get pat, past the fact that it was Kronk at Hyperion, <laughs> which kind of could fit still. Um, so Kronk has got it out for Reese and is demoting him to janitorial duties. So Reese decides that he is going to step behind his back basically embezzle a whole bunch of money, head down to um, Pandaria and get his hands on what Kronk wanted, which is a vault key. Now, this is where, again, the, 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 the manner in which the story is told is a lot of fun because you're getting only Reese's side at this point. So he is going over to planet side. Of course, he's, he goes with his buddy. There are a couple of geeky kind of guys meeting up with a whole bunch of really bad men planet side. So of course there's going to be problems there as well. The, uh, the, the Reese has the option of dropping a loader bot. Who was the best character? In the who game. was fantastic. The loader bot was just absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Did you choose to blow him up or to? Of course uh, I did. Yes. Uh, why did I even bother asking? Sadly, so did I. <laughs> and then they go into this, kind of wax museum thing that oh, wait, did, did, did you not blow him up i did too actually oh okay well that also just to, to derail for a brief second was one of the things i loved most about this game is that given the borderland setting telltale could be a bit more irreverent and they really messed with your expectations uh, as far as you know play style is concerned with yeah you know, everybody knows so and so will remember that is that kind of the telltale meme at this point so when you blow up the loader bot and he's like yeah loader bot will store that in his memory banks i was like what did i do <laughs> i it, it took a while to realize that was probably just a joke and that no loader bot won't actually remember that they'll bring him back somehow so anyways uh, then you go through this kind of wax museum thing which i thought was kind of funny has this whole fear and loathing in las vegas feel to it <laughs> especially the guy that's there and you get the the meeting between the the guy who's got the the vault key and whatnot, and it's not going well. There's a terribly cheesy moment where Reese tries to talk him into selling it and whatnot, and it goes to crap. Of course, from that point, you flip over to the Fiona side, 
and she's basically a scam artist. She's been raised by this father figure who's also a scam artist who taught her and friend Sasha basically everything that they know about scam folks. And that's when you see that the vault key is actually a fake that this guy is making it, painting it even at that point. And the whole thing is they're going to present this vault key to another bad guy on the planet who's got contacts with Vasquez. This guy believes this is the real thing. And so he does not like people who try to hustle or lie to him and things like that. There's a moment where he actually, you can stop him from touching the key or not which I thought was kind of cute too. I don't know. Which one did you choose? Um, I told him it was radioactive. Oh, okay. I actually let him and then he smears the paint on his face. Oh. So I just had to see what happened. And so then they have the meaning. The whole thing is, is that once they get the money, then they're going to take their cut. This guy doesn't know any better. And it's the Hyperion stooge that's going to get screwed over kind of thing. But then of course, things go to crap from there. And who shows up? Zero. So you're getting all of this fighting and whatnot. You're getting Zero showing up, which gives people who played the first two games, especially obviously the second one, that fun sense of, hey, I know that guy. Hey, I played at that as that guy kind of thing. See, I never played Zero. Was oh, he I even did. remotely as interesting as he was portrayed in this game? Zero was awesome. I okay. loved playing as Zero. So, yeah. And what was cool was that, A, you're getting the two sides to the story. And it's kind of this meta thing where they're telling the story because they're being dragged off by some unknown person. And so you're, you're, there's elements of truth in both, but also lies in both. So you have to try to find the truth in between the two. And then you've got them working together at one point to try to get the money, which is still floating around all over the place. Who knows where it is at different points. And so... You've got them working together. There's that one scene that I loved where Reese is coming up with a plan of how to get past all the bandits to yes. make it into the bill. I thought that was brilliant. I loved that. And then they split off and then the main, so Fiona, Fiona goes off with Reese's buddy and Reese goes off with Fiona's buddy kind of thing. And you form relationships there. Who knows what that's going to do later on. I really get the feeling with their so-and-so will remember this. They're going for the long game here. So we may not mm-hmm. know just how Oh, there's going to be a double is. cross in episode five. And, yeah. You know, there's going to be a line in the sand. So, and then again, Zero shows up a little later on for an incredibly painful moment on the elevator there. <laughs> that is so embarrassing <laughs> to watch. <laughs> that was great, though. I loved it. And then you get to that race scene that you're talking about. And again, that I, I loved it. But it was one of those where I wish there had been more gameplay, especially yeah. there, to do that, that was the one point anything. that was really noticeable. So because you it, it's it's so there's so much going on on the screen. Zero shows up, he's bouncing all over. What I loved is that Zero never takes over the story. He's just an important figure that's present and doing all kinds of stuff. It's your characters that are important to this story, which isn't as grandiose. As Zero's story. I mean, Zero's fighting a freaking boss. See, that's what's hilarious. This was largely, it was kind of like that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead feeling of the important story is all the stuff that's going on in the background. But 
you don't care about that because you're seeing it from this different point of view. Because yeah, like you said, Bossa Nova was cool as hell. I loved you know him and Zero, and ultimately that's like the central focus of you know the importance in the Borderlands setting, just not for this particular yeah, game, which I thought was hysterical. Because if you were in Borderlands or Borderlands Two or even the pre sequel, that would be the epic moment where you're fighting the boss. But here it's just taking place in the background. And then again, going back to what you're saying about wishing that was, there was a lot more gameplay, especially there. So there's, there's betrayals, there's heroic moments. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on. I don't want to spoil too much because it's not that old yet. And I do want people to play it. It was a ton of fun. The art style as expected was spectacular. Yeah, the, the Borderlands style really meshes well with yes. Telltale style. The, the music, just as iconic as in the game. The music was phenomenal. Absolutely loved it. In terms of the, the chronology for people who are wondering, it's in, they joked about this on one of the trailers. So you got Borderlands, Borderlands, a pre-sequel, Borderlands 2, and then Tales from the Borderlands takes place after that. You're looking at three years after the fall of Handsome Jack. So... And then you get some of that in this as well. When they find the cash and everybody's getting their weapons too, you're getting that feel of being in a Borderlands game as well and mm -hmm. getting the cash of weapons because you completed a quest or an encounter as well. There's a lot of things that it does superbly well. There's just some other things that I wish they would have done better or enhanced. See, and I'm wondering a lot of that, you know, quote, lack of gameplay is just due to the different narrative structure between this and the other Borderlands games. In addition to the two separate characters, there's a lot of world building that had to go into effect here. Whereas you look yeah. at Walking Dead, the core concept of Walking Dead is you're just thrust into hell and have to deal with it. There's no backstory. There's no world building. Even in uh, Wolf Among Us, there's a fantastic backstory, but you're just sort of thrust into the world and you're, you find out that backstory as you go along and like i said in game of thrones they literally drop you into one of the most pivotal scenes in the entire series and it just you expect you to know what's going on and to run with it whereas here they had to spend a lot of time in those dialogue and narrative scenes to build the world so i'm really hoping in future episodes we do get a little more interactivity now that it's all established and we can move forward yeah yeah so it should be interesting to see going forward i it's already one of those telltale games that I cannot wait for the next one. It all it took was a few minutes into this one for me to be hooked into the story that I can't wait. I'm just am really hoping that moving forward they will give us more options if if that's still possible at this point kind of thing uh to to actually be more involved in the story and to have more control over different things, whether that's gameplay or choices in narrative and things like that. If not, it's such a phenomenal visual novel that I don't care. I'll exactly. I'm perfectly it. okay with just playing an awesome visual novel. Yeah. So that's going to wrap it up. As just an aside, there was actually some very interesting news that came out. I don't know if you guys saw this, but I just thought it was absolutely fantastic, especially in light of all of the things that have happened last year and still going on with feminists being attacked and different things like that. Did you guys see the tweet by Jonathan Cooper, who was the animation director on Mass Effect when it was still in mm -hmm. production, talking about Commander Shepard? Commander Shepard was initially a woman. 
So whenever anybody is thinking that Commander Shepard was actually changed to become a woman to allow that option, nope, she was actually a woman first time out, which is kind of awesome because my favorite Commander Shepard out of the three games for my my playthrough is definitely my Commander Shepard from 2, which was a kick-ass woman. She was yeah, female Shepard was always the default way to play that game. Yeah. <laughs> So I thought that was interesting. Make sure to tune in next week. We are looking at another fantastic episode. We are going to have another Dragon Age feature from Vince talking about some different stuff. So look forward to that. Check us out at ForTheLore.com. The site is done, although I may be doing some more changes because I notice it doesn't quite look quite as good in all browsers right now. So we'll see what comes of it. And I am in the process of importing in all of the past episodes. But there's a lot of past episodes, so it's going to take a while. So just use the feed for now if you want to access any of the past episodes. You can also get them on iTunes. And we are now on Twitter. On Damn it, I keep saying Twitter. Stitcher as well. Sure. Anyways, you can find us on Twitter at For the Lore or individually Joe at Loaders at J, Vince at Simodian, and me, Zen Buddhist. And with that, we will talk to you guys next week. Some people like to rock, some people like to roll. But moving and the grooving gonna satisfy my soul and have a party. Hey, didn't crash this time. Without a freaking hitch, dude. I tell you, Dan being there was the that was the yeah, the, but he what left. We needed, man. I wanted to say, ha, bastard. I did it. <laughs> but he's gone. Get him hell. I tried to get the sound from the oh, I guess I should I guess I may as well bring Vince in. <laughs> Before I start talking too much and completely forget, because I'll never hear the end of it if I don't. He'll be uh, he'll be like the jilted lover. How's the voice? Uh, you tell me. Well, you're sounding like a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just ruins the entire dynamic. <sighs> Dude, my bills are all caught up, son. Dear Hoogs, don't ask me about computers. Come join show. Nothing should crash this time around. Yay. <laughs> If that isn't the kiss of death, I don't know what is. I have all of my assorted medications in front of me. Welcome to my world. (laughs) Thank you for listening to For the Lore. Each week, the show is broadcast live on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stop by forthelore.com slash live to join the conversation and have your thoughts discussed on the show. If you'd like to hear more from the guys, check out Comic Book Informer, a weekly podcast from Vince and Roger, as well as Popcorn Ronin, a bi-weekly movie, TV, and anime podcast. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs.